Welcome back to Barbell Medicine Radio, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 127. This is part one of our Boston Seminars question and answer session. Now, this is back from November-ish of last year. Um, and yeah, we recorded a Q&A at the end of our seminar and split it up into two parts that are going to be on the podcast this week and the following week. Now, a brief note on Austin's audio. So unfortunately, Tom uh, wasn't feeling well, was unable to help with the AV stuff. And he's normally a pro, uh, a veritable whiz at this stuff. And uh, I couldn't figure out how to get the second lavalier mic to work. I don't know what happened. Um, I replaced a bunch of cables. It's working now. But uh, that didn't help us then. So what we did is I, I uh, gave Austin my AirPods, and he actually recorded audio via the AirPods. I thought that was the best way to get some usable audio. But as you'll find out, the audio isn't quite as crisp and as uh, you know, pleasant-sounding as my audio. This isn't a dig at Austin. He's got a great voice. But, uh, yeah, the AirPod stuff, it works. It's, it's clear. You can understand it. It's just uh, not quite ready for radio primetime. But uh, the information is good, so hopefully you guys are okay with that. Now, a few additional announcements. One, still have some new T-shirts available at the Barbell Medicine website. We have the Nuance t-shirts in military green and black, and also the I'm a Placebo t-shirt, so uh, get those. I think we still have most of the sizes left, but I know that stock and inventory is getting uh, really low, so if you're on the fence about getting one of these shirts, well, you shouldn't be on the fence anymore. Go get it. Uh, Link is in the description below. Also, we are doing an online pain and rehabilitation seminar. Uh, normally, we do these in person. Dr. Michael Ray and Dr. Derek Miles um, would usually travel to different sites and host these seminars. But, um, you know, with COVID and travel restrictions and everything else, we thought it best to do these virtually. So we have a two-day virtual seminar. Uh, it's going to be taking place January 30th and 31st. I put a link in the description below. Uh, both days will run from 8 a.m. to about 4.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, each day has about uh, five lectures, uh, including stuff on evidence-based practice, pain education, hip pain, shoulder pain, low back pain, youth resistance training, and ACL rehab. Plus, there's a Q&A at the end of each day uh, where you get to interact live with Derek and Mike. So if you're a healthcare professional who treats folks with musculoskeletal pain, this is the seminar for you. If you're a uh, strength conditioning coach or personal trainer who works with people who have pain, which, you know, is probably all of you, this is the seminar for you. Uh, And if you have a casual interest in, you know, how to uh, train around pain, how to communicate about pain, or just, you know, some sort of fascination with this stuff, Hey, the seminar uh, is for you as well. We've had people from all walks of life attend these seminars and give uh, great reviews. So check out the link in the description below if this interests you. And uh, let's see other announcements. I think that's it for this week. So without any further ado, let's get into part one of our Boston seminar question and answer session. The good thing is, uh, you know, you guys are here, we're holding this thing. Thank you so much for coming. This is uh, Boston, you guys have been great. Uh, The bad news is obviously Tom's not here, so, you know, we can't go through the PA and then into the camera, it's just too much. I can't do that. I don't know, I only have a master's in audiovisual. Tom is the doctor, so. In any case, thank you so much for coming. If you're watching this on YouTube later, thank you for watching, don't turn it off yet. Okay, uh, if you, we don't get to your questions, sorry, head over to our forum, you can ask questions there, you can ask questions on our Facebook group, just request that. If you haven't 
join the Facebook group yet, you should do that. Uh, if that doesn't work, Leah Lutz's DMs. Leah underscore barbell medicine. She feels guilty if she doesn't respond, so she will respond. That, is, that, is true. that makes one of us. That, right, so that's, <laughs> that's the person. Okay, so we're gonna go through our questions here. All uh, right, when discussing the Atian in 2006 study, we saw people who did not respond to the training program. Are there any follow-up studies that show that initial non-responders do in fact respond when presented with the appropriate stimulus? Yes. Yes, there are. There are a number of studies. And this idea of non-response to exercise is pretty interesting. It's been discussed in the research world quite a bit. For anybody who's interested in the topic, probably the best paper to go to is from 2018 uh, from Pickering and Kylie. The title of it is, Do Non-Responders to Exercise Exist? And if, if so, what should we do about it? It's like non-responders. What do? Perfect. Uh, it was a great, I remember reading it when it first came out. We circulated it around our group and a lot of the discussion there and in that kind of field informed a lot of the discussion that you guys heard from us this weekend as far as how we presented it to you. Definitely influenced our thoughts on the matter. As it turns out, this concept of non-response to exercise is not really defined all that well because the idea is there are a whole host of different adaptations that you can get out of exercise. And the idea of non-response just means that there's no change in any measurable physiologic variable whatsoever, which is pretty unlikely. In fact, we they make a case and we agree with it that it doesn't basically happen, again, in living humans. As we made the case during the seminar, we said, if you're alive, you have the capacity to adapt in some capacity. Uh, and that means that there may be some variables that you adapt more to in a given program and some less, and somebody else might respond in a different pattern across those kind of physiologic variables. So they make the case that we should differentiate or, or not get away from using the term non-responder altogether and focus more on the term did not respond, i.e. to that particular program, which is exactly what we discussed this weekend, rather than labeling somebody, oh, you are a non-responder, like you're incapable of adapting. Rather, this program wasn't the right one for you, and rather, we need to find the right dose and formulation of stimulus for you. Um, the other interesting aspect of this is they cite a whole bunch of the research in this uh, realm, and they found that rates of apparent non-response to exercise go down, meaning we see more and more people respond the longer a study goes. So if you keep people training for longer, eventually you see some response. Additionally, with higher doses of training, which is exactly what we talked about this weekend, higher volumes or in uh, some contexts, higher frequencies. So there are studies of people training twice a week and you see, you know, apparent low responders in that study and they bump them up to four times a week and suddenly you see training responses. So increasing the dose of exercise. And then the other one is interesting, and it pertains more to study methodology. It has to do with how many variables they actually measure. So if, you're all, if all you measure is like 1RM strength, for example, then there may be more apparent non-responders compared to if you measured strength outcomes, hypertrophy outcomes, maybe body composition changes, maybe resting heart rate changes, maybe blood pressure, maybe blood lipids. The more things you measure, the more likely you are to actually end up detecting some adaptive response to exercise. So that part is like almost a study methodology issue where you can have higher rates of a kind of apparent non-response if you don't look at enough variables of adaptation that people can possibly respond to exercise with. So all of this stuff heavily informed the discussion um, that you guys heard during the lecture uh, uh, this weekend and the idea that if you're alive, you can adapt in some capacity to something. And we, our, our job, the coach's job, is to find the right dose and formulation of exercise to help you uh, you know, generate the response that you're looking for. Yeah. Can you imagine a situation where somebody told you that you were a non-responder to exercise 
and then or like you had been training for a while let's say like a year and no program that you had done had worked well for you everything you felt like at least relative to your expectations and then maybe the people who you were working out with or training with they all did much better than you so you were on the low end the accountant end of the scale again present company excluded like what kind of psychological warfare would you have to, <laughs> to endure to just persevere and then be like it's going to be okay i'm going to find this program right. i'm going to identify this thing but that that happens all the time in sport where people like don't do well at their self-selected sport or their second sport that they got exposed to or the third sport they but they keep trying different things and find the thing that they excel with and I think that's how I view training. It's like, even if you've been on five, six, seven, whatever, different programs before and not done that well, my role as a coach is to identify the thing or things that allow you to develop yourself to your maximum potential. That's what I'm here for, ideally. So the idea that fitting people into this rigid, like it's gotta be this program. Why? Because this program works all the time, for example. Or because it's worked in the past with other people I've coached. Uh, or it's my preference. Like those things are holding coaches back. Those things are holding their clients back. And so the idea would be being more malleable, being more open to trying different things. You're trying to find, again, yeah, the right dose, the right formulation, and anything that stands in your way of doing that is, is basically a limitation. And, and, and that could, may include you know, being told or sort of conditioned to be like, well, you're just not gonna respond well. You're a woman, you can't respond well to training. <laughs> Right, and it's like, what does that do at a society level? But that's for another that's for another YouTube video. So don't hate me in the comments. You'll hear you'll hear similar discussions come up when people are talking about weight loss and diets. Uh, there's discussion. You know, you'll hear doctors, for example, or or coaches say, this individual failed this diet, or they failed so many number of diets. Or in medicine, you'll hear people say, this patient quote failed physical therapy. I I always correct that kind of language when we're talking about it because none of these things are like one monolithic intervention that we can do to people. And the person didn't fail the diet. Uh, the, that dietary approach did not work for them, right? And there is an approach that we can find, keep experimenting until we find something that works. Similarly, the specific approach that was provided by the specific physical therapist that they saw may not have worked well for them. Uh, but you don't know what the dose of exercise was, the formulation. Maybe all they did was they went in and they got like passive e-stim for the whole 12 weeks of their rehab. No shit, they didn't get better, yeah. right? Because <laughs> that doesn't work unless they were going to get better on their own anyway. So they didn't fail that physical therapy. That physical therapist arguably, more arguably failed the patient. And we need to find a better way to get them to adapt in that situation in the same way somebody training for performance needs to find the right formulation to adapt. Same way somebody trying to find the right diet for weight loss needs to find the right dietary setup that's going to work for them to let them achieve their goals. Yeah. 35-year-old <laughs> male, failed exercise. Right. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. Yeah. Uh, question number two, how do you assess self-efficacy during your initial evaluation? Oh, this is a great question. Um, well, you just ask them, what's your self-efficacy? And it, no, it's, <laughs> usually it's like, huh? Um, so barring any proprietary methods like that PAM 13, which I've never used personally, I just, you know, found it on the internet to torrent it just to see what it was, really interesting. But some of the questions are, are, can be useful or the styles of questions. Um, so admittedly in barbell medicine, and so that's what I do now, it's my full time job. Uh, this is not something I need to usually directly assess, being like to try to figure out, does this person have resources, skills, like 
you know, the chutzpah to go out there. And, you, you like that? <laughs> to go out there and, you know, try to take ownership of their own health and, how, and the role that they play in their own health. But uh, in residency, you know, a question I would often ask people uh, is, you know, what do you view your role in all of this to be? So if we're talking about a disease status or, or like a new diagnosis or a long-term chronic disease, like, so how, what, what is your role in this, in this sort of process? And it is a question, like a loaded question, because a person might be like, either I've never thought about it or right. immediately like, ah, I don't feel great about that. But th that's not necessarily a bad thing, because if they feel sort of bad about it or responsible, that's what I want them to feel responsible for. I don't want to feel bad. I want them to be like, I do take responsibility for my own health and my, I feel like I'm in control. That's, those are signs of self-efficacy. If someone were to say, I don't feel like I play any role in this. I don't have any responsibility. That's the opposite. That's low self-efficacy. And so um, assessing what resources, skills, tools somebody else has available to them is a whole nother line of questions. And so going in uh, with more open-ended questions specific to the sort of behavioral change you're targeting. So if it's exercise, be like, okay, what sort of uh, exercise would you like to do? What sort of strategies do you have to become more physically active? What sort of access do you have? Um, and sort of then you're starting to assess like how far people have gone on their own. And that, again, gives you a clue how much self-efficacy do they have. If someone was super motivated, ready to change their behavior, and had a high level of self-efficacy, I probably wouldn't be seeing them for, to change <laughs> their physical activity patterns because they'd have already done it, right? So I'm trying to find the hang-up, right? Where, is the, where, where do I need to come in and either provide, uh, if, if it's knowledge, okay. If it's additional strategies, okay. If it's additional resources, okay. Uh, it just, you're, you're trying to kind of work down that rabbit hole to figure out where you come in, rather than starting from the beginning and not going through any of that and saying, here's the plan. Yeah, uh, assessing self-efficacy, I think, emerges naturally just from having a conversation with somebody. Um, I presented during the pain lecture a bunch of examples of the kind of open-ended questions that I'll ask people during this evaluation uh, for almost anything, whether it's medical, pain-related, et cetera. You know, what do you think is going on? What are your biggest concerns? Have you dealt with this before? What did you, what did you do then? What do you, you know, what do you think is going on, et cetera? And through all that, just listening to their answers, you can get a feel for where somebody's head is at with something. Um, there are certain validated questionnaires for self-efficacy in certain contexts. There's, for example, um, a pain self-efficacy questionnaire, PSEQ. But once you start down that rabbit hole, it is easy to get way too excited about questionnaires. And you can use questionnaires and scales to evaluate everything. There's a Tampa scale for kinesiophobia. There's a catastrophizing scale. There's a pain self-efficacy questionnaire. There's questionnaires for literally everything you can think of, backpack and, all, you know, all, all the, there's way too many of them. And eventually your whole uh, uh, encounter with somebody is them filling out questionnaires. <laughs> So I think uh, that's something that um, probably more useful, in my opinion, for research purposes to actually measure things like differences in self-efficacy over the course of a particular intervention. If that's what the study wanted to look at in real world practice, I don't think you need a questionnaire to do that. I think you need to you know, be a human and interact with another human and have a conversation and get a sense of where they're at, and where they're coming from. The downside is that takes time. Right. And so you need to be in a clinical environment where you actually have the time to do that. So that can be tricky. Where's the AI self-efficacy? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, all right, my friend at work, asking for a friend, my friend at work who had heart surgery told me his doctor said he couldn't squat because of the short-term spike in blood pressure due to its higher intensity and greater muscle mass. I'd be impressed if he said that. I mean, just, you know, that was his rationale. Okay, uh, as opposed to running, is this reasonable? Can he live a well-adjusted life post-op without ever lifting weights again and sticking strictly to aerobic activity? 
I mean, my initial knee-jerk reaction is no. Um, if you're not able to do any sort of resistance training at all, I feel like there's a substantial health risk to that, even if you can still participate in cardiorespiratory fitness activities. And we just went over like all of the reasons why. If you're at home and you haven't attended a barbell medicine seminar, this isn't a sales pitch for coming here. You can go check out the 2018 Physical Activity Guidelines Scientific Consensus, where they go over all of the benefits that are strictly related to both resistance training and cardiorespiratory fitness training. So if the question is, can he live like a full and complete life? Oh, pro probably not. He's probably gonna suffer some undue uh, sort of consequences from not being able to do any resistance training. Does he necessarily need to squat? Well, no, I feel like we just went through that example uh, quite candidly. We, you, he could do leg press, for example, or he could use higher, uh, higher repetitions. He could go at a really low RPE. All of that would reduce the transient spike in blood pressure, you know, compared to like a 1RM, Austin Baraki, you know, eyeballs popping out sort of effort. Um, but the real question is, what are the actual risks of this person squatting compared to the potential benefits? I don't know what procedure he had. Right. So this person may have like an ascending aorta aneurysm that like they just can't fix. And, you know, they're being very risk averse. And, you know, sometimes it do be like that. Uh, but I'd also then wonder about other activities that spike blood pressure very high. Going to the bathroom, sexual intercourse, etc. Do the which was in the question. Yes, exactly. Going to go up while he runs. Yes, exactly. So uh, and so it just depends on the context. If this is a routine heart surgery, this is, you know, like bypass surgery. That's what I'm saying. Then train after. Exactly. Yeah. So it just depends on the on the procedure and then what are the risks, the actual risks of the procedure with respect to increases in blood pressure from exercise compared to the risks from long-term hypertension, for example. And the risks of not training. And the risks of not training. Yeah, I think the main reason that I included this question was to reemphasize to everybody the idea that all exercise increases your blood pressure while you're doing it. He did my thing. Yes. Uh, that was more for the tubes. Yeah, thank you. So they know that all exercise increases your blood pressure while you're doing it. And so if there is an objection to this guy training because of a short-term spike in blood pressure, I would be very curious about how aggressively his blood pressure is being managed just in his day-to-day -day life. Because again, he sits down on the toilet, blood pressure is going to go up. Mm -hmm. He gets up first thing in the morning, his blood pressure is going to go up. Otherwise, he's going to stand up from bed and promptly pass out. Um, running, if that's allowed, his blood pressure is going up when, they, when he runs. Yeah. So where is this recommendation coming from and what is it based on? Is it ba just based on like feels? Like it feels like lifting weights is going to be more risky? That's arguably made up in a lot of contexts. I definitely get and agree and understand that in certain surgical procedures, the potential theoretical risks are so scary, like rupturing an aortic aneurysm where you die very quickly. But we still don't have great evidence on that, right? Uh, I think it is unlikely that that was the surgical procedure since they specifically said heart surgery. Um, more, more likely, probably this is like a valve deal in which case you can train or a bypass situation which in which you can, you can train. Yeah, it feels like an LVAD or something. And, like uh, maybe you <laughs> and the uh, blood pressure scenario is le of less concern, especially since running is apparently okay. So. I did a seminar, it wasn't a barbell medicine seminar, it was before this, it was 2016. And uh, one of the guys on his intake form was like, oh yeah, I have an ascending aortic aneurysm. <laughs> and I read this and I was like, huh? 
I was like, is it okay for this guy to like exercise? So I went over uh, and I was like, hey man, what's up with your heart? You know? And he's like, oh yeah, my uh, cardiologist and I have an agreement you know, that uh, if I drop dead, I won't tell anyone that he told me <laughs> it was okay to lift weights. And I was like- So much for that. <laughs> okay, I guess if you're dead, yeah, that's true. Um, and, and then he's like, he's actually a physician and you know, very well trained and everything. And he's like, I get why you're here, but yeah, I'm still gonna lift weights. So I was like, I mean, that's cool. So I'm not telling this person to lift weights or not. This is all for educational purposes anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if it's one of the, if it, unless it's something where you legitimately cannot increase your blood pressure, then- In which case he probably can't wouldn't run either. run either. Can't yeah. run, yep. All right. How is inflammation helpful in the healing slash recovery process? Uh, yeah, I, I guess the way I would describe this is that the inflammatory process post-exercise signals a bunch of other cool stuff to happen um, involving the immune system, involving a bunch of other signaling cascades that basically allow muscles to uh, grow, uh, re replenish stuff that's been depleted, repair stuff that's been otherwise damaged, and that's the sort of repair process that's occurring at the micro level. But I also wouldn't characterize this as inflammation as most people commonly think about it, like, oh, inflammation bad. This is just, this is inflammation that do usually doesn't even register on ways that we commonly measure inflammatory diseases. So we measure that via like C-reactive protein or erythro erythrocyte sedimentation rate, ESR. Your, your inflammatory sort of response to resistance training, even if it was like a relatively hard session, wouldn't even budge this. It would be within the error bars of the test and still well below anything that any clinician would care about, right? So I guess I wouldn't think about like when you're finishing exercise, you're putting the barbell up and you're like, inflammation, consume my body. Like I'm ready to heal. It's probably not <laughs> like what's going on, but uh, from a like at a micro level, the uh, inflammatory uh, processes that are occurring signal other uh, sort of cascades from the immune system and other places to basically allow your body to repair, replenish, recover, etc. And that being said, there's been a much ado about impairing this inflammatory process, like don't ice, don't use ice, or don't use NSAIDs, for example. Like don't take ibuprofen after training because you're gonna ruin your gains or fish oil. Now I don't think you should ice or take fish oil for other reasons, mainly because they don't do anything um, in most populations, particularly ice and fish oil uh, uh, just for the reasons why most people take it. But the NSAID thing has actually been studied and it just doesn't change what happens. Doesn't change the amount of strength you gain or hypertrophy you gain. So I wouldn't again even think about this as the classic inflammatory sort of thing that most different than having lupus substantially <laughs> yeah although if i had lupus i still wouldn't worry about the inflammation that occurs post-training i'd just be pumped that you're training yes i agree do you have anything more to add to that no not really i mean i included it because the word infl inflammation is commonly demonized and i think it's important to recognize that it's a normal biological process it's part of why we all still exist here on earth the inflammatory response the immune response is a very important component of uh, adaptation response to threat to pathogens, things like that. So yeah, part of life. Now it is tightly regulated in a healthy individual and it can become dysregulated. It can get out of control in people with these kind of auto-inflammatory, autoimmune diseases. That's a whole separate category. Those are the things we talked about like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and things like that. But those are, you know, uh, uh, outside of the context that we're talking about in exercise. So don't sweat it. Don't sweat the technique. Yeah. I think this is what, what Warren G was talking about, regulators. He was talking about inflammation. All right, 
Does the act of lifting heavy weight intrinsically improve self-efficacy? Noted libertarian curmudgeon Mark Ripito says yes. <laughs> Renowned behavioral neurologist and state champion powerlifter Oliver Sacks says no. What say you? <laughs> Did Tom write this? <laughs> from, from not being here? No, I think this, this came from in the room. I this think. is excellent. Yeah, excellent solid. question. Solid. I think that there's probably um, some in-between answers here, even though people don't tend to like in-between answers. One thing about self-efficacy is that the strongest effects that we see, uh, so, so to back up a little bit, people have been studying how do we actually increase self-efficacy for a while, because it's tough, just like behavioral change is tough, just like belief change is tough. Actually, increasing people's self-efficacy is actually challenging as well. Additionally, measuring it is tricky in that there are kind of context-specific or task-specific forms of self-efficacy. So I mentioned earlier the pain self-efficacy questionnaire. That has specifically to do with somebody's self-efficacy, specifically having to do with self-managing their own pain. That doesn't necessarily extend to all other aspects or all other areas of life. You can feel confident in managing your own pain, but then when it comes to some other aspect of your life, not to really feel like you have skills, knowledge, strategies, confidence, and self-efficacy for self-managing that. So to some extent, it's kind of like when we talk about the said principle in training, right? When you train to squat, you get the greatest improvements in squatting with progressively less kind of transference to other tasks, the less similar they are to it. I think there's also some degree of specificity with respect to self-efficacy. So if the question is lifting heavy weights intrinsically improves self-efficacy, I would say with respect to lifting heavy weights, does it increase your confidence and you know sense of control over lifting heavy weights? For sure. Yeah. That's what happens as you continue to train over a period of time. Does that necessarily translate into higher self-efficacy in other areas of life? Eh, that's not going to be as consistent, as strong of a kind of a transference into other areas. Different people are going to respond differently in that situation. But, you know, to take an example, if we get somebody, uh, uh, you know, implementing a bunch of lifestyle changes, they want to start training, they want to change their dietary habits, things like that. And they start training that increases their self-efficacy in the gym. Does that necessarily mean that all of a sudden they feel awesome about self-managing all the aspects of their diet? Not necessarily. So there's some degree of specificity here. Um, and this has also been researched to some extent. And that's basically what we end up seeing is task-specific self-efficacy goes up. Doesn't necessarily extend broadly to like ev every other aspect of life. Yeah. I think there's obviously some like lessons you learn in the process of like becoming proficient at anything. And so proficiency in lifting weights, you get much stronger. You start to understand the process of like how learning a new task goes and like there'll be setbacks and then there'll be, you know, obstacles you have to like work around. And yeah, so that might, you might understand the process from the front end a little bit better. So that way you, you have a little bit more reserve to like deal and tolerate with like obstacles. And, yeah. but uh, you can get real strong and still be an asshole. Like, you know, it doesn't make you a better person just to like get stronger. Does it like improve your ability to like, you know, succeed in all areas of life because just because you got stronger? Uh, I don't know. I don't think that lifting weights is some sort of like virtuous accomplishment. I think that rather the person who starts exercising and changes their diet or whatever, who had a substantial barriers in their way to doing so, right? Single mother, multiple kids not a lot of access immediately, you know, nearby who, you know, finds a way to make it into the gym or otherwise train and then change your lifestyle. That's like more virtuous than like, yeah, I, you know, I did my heavy set today and it was a little heavier than last week. Like that's cool. But like, 
I don't, I don't think it you know, improves your ability to do all these other things or makes you a good person. I really want to get that across. It doesn't make you <laughs> a good person. Is it, how many, okay, you should go to powerlifting meets now and people like know who you are. They're like, Austin, I love your stuff. Like, it's great. Not everybody, obviously. Some people. Yeah, sure. That's cool. That's fun. But there are a lot of like self-important jerks at powerlifting meets. Like this is the meet that's going to define them as a person, right? Like everybody's going to remember that they, this was the meet. Narrator, no one will remember. No one will remember. <laughs> Seriously. Greatest powerlifters from two or three years ago that don't lift anymore. No one even knows who they were. It's powerlifting. And the internet has passed them by. And it doesn't mean that they were, you know, good or bad people outside of the powerlifting uh, uh, world. It just means that no one cares. Okay. Just want to get that across. As long as the internet knows. Is the process of spontaneous reabsorption of a herniated disc likely the result of an acute inflammatory processes? Oh, likely the result of acute inflammatory processes. And do you consider steroid injection in the acute phase to reduce local inflammation and improve pain perception? Does this slow down the recovery process? Yes. I just, okay. Good question. You okay? Yeah, got it. Okay. This is a, a topic that I've addressed in some of the back pain lectures uh, that I've given in a few different contexts. So herniated discs, again, big time common fear that people have anytime they experience any kind of back pain, even though, as you guys learned, doesn't necessarily, just because we find a disc herniation on imaging doesn't mean that that was necessarily the cause of somebody's back pain experience. It can be something that we find just because we looked and it had been there kind of all along, even though it can be tempting to kind of correlate those two. In some situations, there is a clear correlation. Somebody has evidence of a disc herniation at a specific kind of level in their, uh, in their spine. It might be impinging upon a specific structure in the spinal cord, and the person has correlating symptoms that you would expect based on that nerve, for example. They might have some specific pattern of weakness, specific pattern of pain or numbness or something, and all of it matches up. Uh, and that is probably the best case you can make for a disc herniation that matters uh, for that patient at that time. Um, and in this situation, the pain can be excruciating. If you've talked to anybody who's experienced radicular pain, or if you've experienced radicular pain, it can be some of the worst pain that you'll hear anybody report to you. Um, and so one potential intervention that has been looked at, it's been studied a bit, has been in what's called an epidural corticosteroid injection um, that's uh, uh, inserted with a needle and injected locally around that area. Um, something that is done very, very frequently uh, for all kinds of back pain. I would argue probably more than is supported by the evidence for, uh, for back pain. So when I've given lectures on this topic before, I actually get into this. And so I pulled up the reference that I've used before. It's by Chu um, and colleagues in 2015. The title is Epidural Corticosteroid Injections for Radiculopathy. And I think they also looked into spinal stenosis. It's a systematic review and meta-analysis. The idea was they looked at all these studies that were placebo-controlled. Because you guys remember all the aspects that I described that can augment the potential meaning of an intervention, augment uh, the perceived potency of an intervention placebo effect. Somebody says they're going to draw up this potent anti-inflammatory medicine and inject it directly at the site of your pain. That's a pretty significant way to augment a placebo response in somebody. So these studies need to be placebo-controlled to kind of account for that because we have found, we have seen that spinal injections do have a substantial placebo effect on individuals with respect to their symptoms. So in this uh, review, they looked at 30 placebo-controlled trials of epidural corticosteroid injections for radicular uh, pain symptoms, for radiculopathy. And with respect to pain, they found a reduction in pain in the short term, so immediate reduction in pain. However, when they pooled all this data, they found that if you took pain on a scale of zero to 100, 
the average response in terms of reduction in pain was about 7.5 points. So if you think more in terms of 1 to 10 scales in pain, because if you work in, in uh, kind of clinical medicine, that's a 0.7 out of 10 reduction in somebody's pain score on average from these injections, which was uh, basically lower than what they previously established was like a minimum clinically important difference, meaning that they decided beforehand, they said, what's a significant enough uh, difference for us to say that this matters. And it was higher than that. So it was below that. Now you will definitely come across people who say, I got the injection and it was a miracle. Help me feel amazing. There's likely some element of the drug, some element of placebo, uh, and probably some variability in response. Cause again, that 7.5 was an average. Um, there was a small improvement in function immediately after the injection. Um, and a slightly decreased risk of proceeding to surgery in the short term. But if they, when they reevaluated these folks about a year later, there was basically no difference in people's outcomes uh, um, as a result of this injection. Some would say, oh, look, we looked at a year later and there was no difference between these people. Nobody should get these injections. I would probably say, having seen these folks and how they look and how absolutely excruciating uh, these symptoms are, and given the fact that there is some evidence of uh, a pain reduction, even though it is on average below that minimum clinically important difference, if I were in that situation, I might be be okay with getting that kind of an injection if I had a clear radicular pain syndrome that correlated with the imaging findings and all that. I wouldn't necessarily deny that to somebody else or refuse it myself just because, oh, a year from now, I'm going to be the same either way. Um, there is some element of reducing human suffering in this kind of context, and so I can make a case for it here. In other back pain scenarios, when they've looked at spinal stenosis, when they've looked at non-radicular back pain, when they've looked at facet joint in injections, those con those contexts, there is no difference between uh, steroid injections and placebo injections um, in those contexts. So those I would be less likely to use, whereas in clear radicular pain syndrome, I might be more likely either to take it if it were me or to be okay with it if it were for a patient. We get a lot of questions about how to fix people's back pain. And now I know the answer. There you go. Just inject them all. That well fixes it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's a wrap on part one of our Boston Seminars question and answer session. Next week, we'll have part two. And the week following, we have a pretty great episode on vitamin D with Austin Baraki being back in the recording studio. And by recording studio, I, of course, mean his house. But still, great episode. So make sure you keep it tuned to Barbell Medicine Radio on Monday to catch your latest dose of nuance. Uh, other reminders, hey, wherever you're getting this podcast from, you know, whether it's Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, etc., leave us a, a five-star rating and a review. really helps drive traffic to our podcast. And uh, we'll catch you next Monday. See you.